Well, tonight we're going to sing a little less because we have a little more to talk about. Lord's suppers are always uh, a somewhat sober and heavy time in the life of the church. Tonight's Lord's Supper will be, I think, even more sobering and heavy than usual. Because it's not just a, a private examination of our own sins. That's what we do when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Together we obey 1 Corinthians 11 and we examine ourselves, right? So we, we look inward, we, we judge motives, we once again find ourselves wanting. We once again find ourselves in need of a Savior. And that process is... Um, is sobering and heavy, but it won't just be a personal call for us to examine ourselves tonight and not just a personal uh, call to repentance and faith where we sort of quietly do business with God, but tonight we're going to talk about these things on a more corporate, um, more pub- public level. Know that as uh, she- uh, elders and shepherds in the church, we do this with fear and trembling. Um, Know that we do this with literally hundreds of hours of counseling time and prayer and meetings that lead up to something like tonight. What we'll do tonight is to ask you, the body, to help us pray for and plead with some of our own, some of our own DSC folks about their sin and about unrepentance. So we'll get specific about that. Later in the service, not up front, after we partake together, we'll give you some more specific details about that. But first, let me take some time to walk us through what we call church discipline. Church discipline 101 is really what we could call what we're going to try to talk about tonight. And let me start with a, a passage that really isn't much about church discipline in a sense. It's a typical Lord's Supper passage, 1 Corinthians 11. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 11, a Again, a very typical, a most basic Lord's Supper passage, perhaps the most thorough explanation of the Lord's Supper given to us in Scripture, and so the one we probably most frequently go to. Right in the middle of it is a discipline issue. 1 Corinthians 11, and we'll skip down to verse 27, in the midst of Paul's instructions about how to partake of the Lord's Supper, when to partake. He says this in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the body and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, like he just talked about, some are sick and some have even died. When we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This passage talks about a redemptive judgment. A redemptive judgment. The Lord apparently physically punished some in the Corinthian church with sickness. Others were killed that they might be saved. Verse 23, or 32 rather, says that they might be saved. They might not be judged like the rest of the world is judged. They're judged in a more temporary and yet redemptive sort of way. Nevertheless, they're judged because 
of certain sins, whatever it was they were doing. It says here in verse 29, they didn't discern the body. They messed with the Lord's Supper. They messed with the Lord's Supper in a number of ways. And we've talked about the ways in which they've messed with the Lord's Supper from 1 Corinthians 11 at other Lord's Supper services. We won't do that tonight. It really doesn't matter. My point is just that there's a category of redemptive judgment. That regardless of what it was that arose in the Lord, you know, to stir up his judgment, his discipline, and his salvation, it tells us that he did act, that there was something wrong that stirred up his his judgment and discipline in such a way that some were sick and even some died. This may be what 1 John 5, 16 is talking about when it talks about the sin unto death. That there is a a kind of sin, there's a certain pattern of sin perhaps, that a believer commits when the Lord takes him home. It's a saving act. It's a redemptive act. It's a discipline act. It's not unlike in Acts 5 when God disciplined Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, they lied about how much they gave of their possessions to the church. And they were just struck dead. They just fell to the ground. Now, it doesn't say they fell to the ground and went to hell. We should assume, based on 1 John 5 and based on 1 Corinthians 11, that this is the same thing. God struck them dead in a movement of preservation. He loved them enough to say, no more, you're coming home. Now, sometimes the Lord's discipline isn't like that. Most of the discipline that we know is private and personal, where perhaps we wonder whether it's a trial that's not because of our sin, or perhaps it's a trial that is because of our sin. It's Hebrews 12 kind of discipline. You can read that passage later on your own, but there it's more of a private personal discipline where sometimes we sense that the Lord is using this means or that trial to chastise us and get our attention. It's like he he snaps the leash. You know, you have a dog? Some of you do? You know about walking the dog and you know about snapping the leash a little bit to just get the attention? It doesn't have to hurt, but it's just enough for them to look up at you and remember that you're the boss and you're walking them. The Lord snaps the leash from time to time, sometimes in personal, private, and discreet ways, according to Hebrews 12. But then sometimes the Lord disciplines his children, seems less he does it these days, in a preemptive, life-taking way. He keeps them from going any further. He takes them home to glory in, in a sense, in a way that's premature. But what happens when sin and unrepentance are bad enough and long enough that they're no longer just personal and private, but they're more public? It can't just be between ourselves and God. What happens when apparently sin and unrepentance aren't yet bad enough in the Lord's eyes and in his wisdom, his mysterious wisdom, for him to make that kind of 1 Corinthians 11 preemptive, life-taking, disciplined judgment of ultimate salvation, bringing that person home to glory through a surprised and somewhat, in a sense, premature death. What happens when it's something in between? Well, one answer would be 1 Corinthians 5. So look over at 1 Corinthians 5, if you would. 
1 Corinthians 5, where Paul confronts one guy's very public, profane, and apparently unrepentant sin. We won't go into the specifics. I'll pick up, actually, in the middle of Paul's account of this in 1 Corinthians 5. It starts in verse 1. But in verse 4, he says, When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man, this man with this public Profane and apparently unrepentant sin, deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You see, again, that hope of ultimate salvation. And praise God, Paul's hopes for this man and his salvation were later realized. We get that from 2 Corinthians 2. It seems like Paul's talking about the same guy there when he has to tell the Corinthians that this man is repentant. And now that he's repentant, you have to let him back in. Now that he's repentant, you have to accept him without qualification. That was the goal, his repentance and his restoration. It wasn't a punitive withdrawal. It wasn't a cruel exile when we sent him out, when we handed him over to the realm of Satan, as it were, so that he felt less comforted, so that he felt less protected, so that he had less of the gifts of the church and the fellowship therein, and was drawn by the Lord into repentance. You need to restore that man. You need to accept him. It's, again, redemptive judgment. We have in 1 Corinthians 11, redemptive judgment. Judgment that's unto death as a a redemptive move of the Lord in his discipline. You also have in 1 Corinthians 5, redemptive judgment that isn't quite miraculous. It's more natural, isn't it? It's the church making a declaration, a decision to identify this man for how he's behaving, how he's acting, and to pray and hope for his repentance and restoration. Another place that speaks to this issue of redemptive judgment is, of course, Matthew 18. Look at that, if you would. Matthew 18. Essentially, what we're doing is what's spelled out in Matthew 18. Tonight, we're taking one of those steps. And we need to remind ourselves of those steps in Matthew 18 and these other passages on discipline because because we're forgetful. We spend at least an hour of our membership class talking about this. What is church discipline? What does it mean? How do we do it? What are the passages about this saying to us? But many of you haven't been through knowing Christ, knowing the church, our membership class in a long time. Maybe three, four years, five years, six We also haven't had to do this kind of thing as a church in any recent time, not in the last six years or so. We need sort of a a church discipline 101 to remind us of what the Bible says about these things. Look at Matthew 18 and start in verse 15. Jesus tells us there, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, 
Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now this passage assumes a few things. It assumes the reality of sin in the Christian life. This passage assumes that there's going to be sin that needs to be addressed. And that sometimes it's going to be a fight. It's going to be a wrestling. Of course, that internal wrestling looks like this in Galatians 5. The flesh lusts against the spirit so that you don't do the things that you wish. We know that there will be sin in this life until Jesus takes us home. And this passage, Matthew 18, tells us that that should also involve others at times. This passage assumes the presence and involvement of others to help us with our own sin. Now, in our extremely individualistic 21st century American age, this isn't kind of thing that you find too many places. But it's in the Bible. Despite the fact that Matthew 7.1 is in the Bible... Judge not, unless you be judged. There are other places in the Bible that tell us to judge. In fact, in Matthew 7, yes, verse 1 says, Judge not that you be not judged. But it goes on to talk about what kind of judgment Christians are to do with each other. You might be familiar with that analogy, a picture, word picture Jesus gives us there in Matthew 7 about take the log out of your own eye. So we like to quote that back to a hypocrite, someone who judges hypocritically. Oh, take the log out of your own eye. And yes, there are some kinds of judgment that are extremely hypocritical. Jesus uses comedy, absurdity to paint that picture for us. A guy trying to help you with a, a small eye booger while he has an enormous log sticking out of his eye. I mean, he says, here, you've got an eyelash. Let me get that for you. Dude, you have, you have a two-by-four sticking out of your head. That's what he's trying to communicate to us. It's absurd. But the passage goes on to say, verse 5, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We need personal purity so that we're in a position to help others with their sin. We should have a community approach to log and speck removal. We should help each other. We are our brother's own keeper. Matthew 18 also assumes there's a need for ongoing repentance in the Christian life. Repentance is the door through which we entered the Christian life, right? That's how this whole thing started. The gospel came to you, you heard about it, you saw your sin, you saw God's righteous judgment. There was sorrow for that. You disowned your own worth, your own merit, your own working and faith in Christ was the other side of that coin. The Christian life is one filled of repentance. It needs to keep on happening. Not with perfection. None of us can keep on top of confessing our sins. What we're talking about tonight isn't related to whether or not you have sins that are unconfessed. We all do. I certainly do. There are sins that I don't know about that I didn't confess. There are sins I do know about that I didn't confess. There are some sins I know about and kind of confess, but I probably didn't confess it so well. I probably just said, I'm sorry. Lord, please forgive me. I, and it wasn't heartfelt. It wasn't moved. It wasn't with tears. 
Well, that's not the kind of repentance we're talking about necessarily. Just in general, there's a need for ongoing repentance in the Christian life. Not with perfection, but with general direction. That's what the Lord's Supper, in part, is for, right? That's why we examine ourselves and once again find ourselves needy, wanting, helpless, hopeless without Christ. We again walk ourselves through Basically, the gospel in our own conversion experience. Repentance is no small part of the purposes for this meal. It's also assumed in Matthew 18 that this is massively serious when Christians stop repenting. It may indicate that they have never really did it in the first place despite a good confession, despite a decent profession, despite some appearance of fruit. They may not have done it truly in the first place. Maybe, maybe they have. Maybe not. Time will help us see whether that fruit is genuine, whether that repentance bears fruit with repentance. And this process in Matthew 18 helps us. There there are five stages listed there in Matthew 18. One of them, the first one, isn't really there, but it's assumed, it's obvious. It has to be part of our Our arsenal of discipline, it starts with us. That's the first one. Stage one of these five stages is personal discipline. It doesn't involve anyone else. I see my sin, I confront it, I repent of it, I trust in Christ and move on. That's not in Matthew 18 exactly, but that that is obvious. It's part of Christian living. Now some sins are seen, but love covers a multitude of sins. Some sins are seen by my brothers and sisters, by my wife or by my kids. And when they see it, they don't necessarily have to say, Matthew 18, step two. (laughs) You don't have to spell it out. This is Matthew 18. Some sins just get covered over. And yet, some sins, where especially there's a pattern, and where it's more loving to confront then to cover, then confrontation needs to happen. So personal discipline is ideal. I just deal with it myself. I confront my own sin. I discipline myself in godliness. But sometimes that doesn't happen and I need others to get involved. That's stage two. Stage two is where Matthew 18 verse 15 picks up. If you see your brother's sin, go to him and tell him his fault. Verse 15. So where we see a sin, and again, it's not maybe one picky sin. It's not something that's possibly debated. You know, some Christians think you shouldn't play cards or dance or, or have a glass of wine. Well, I'm here to tell you you're wrong and church discipline begins now, right here. No, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking more overt sins, obvious sins, undebated sins, and perhaps even a sin pattern. And where that's the case, you go to your brother and you tell him of his sin. You show him his sin. It doesn't say go to someone else and see what they think. It doesn't say go to someone else and tell them to pray about it. It doesn't say go to someone else and, and, well, just tell them that they should know about so-and-so. No, it says go to your brother and tell him his sin. And if he repents... If he hears you, that's the, the word Jesus used there. If he, use, if he hears you, then this is it. It's settled. It doesn't go any further. 
If he repents, that's it. But if he doesn't repent, there's a a third stage. Stage three in Matthew 18 is take two or three with you. Take one or two witnesses that by two or three together there there might be witnesses. Now, witnesses to what? Not witnesses to whatever the original sin may have been. But now witnesses to this brother or sister's unrepentance. Possible hard-heartedness. It gets more serious when more people get involved. Two or three come together to talk to this brother or sister and tell them or her these sins. To warn them about unrepentance. To plead them to repent and if they repent, then it's settled. That's it. You just move on. Good. You've won your brother. But where that isn't the case, it needs to move on to a fourth stage. Really, in our church, there's a third and a half stage. There's a 3.5. Stage four is tell it to the church. That's actually where we are with three folks tonight. And we need to tell you about those folks and um, how to pray for them and plead with them where you have contact with them. We'll do that later in the service. But here's stage 3.5. It obviously has to go through our leadership. It has to go through elders. So you could either put that at the end of the 2 and 3 being witnesses or at the beginning of tell it to the church. But if it's going to be told to the church, it's going to go through its leadership, those who lead services in the church. Therefore, for a long time in these kind of issues... It, it's at that 3.5 stage. The elders, or some of the elders, are dealing with this. They're going to that person, to these people, pleading with them for repentance. Again, that's where I said earlier, comes in hundreds of hours of counseling and prayer, and then meeting to discuss what's going on and what we're going to do about it. But where it's inevitably the case that they're unrepentant still, we have to obey stage four and tell it to the church like it says in verse 17. Tell it to the church. And then if they don't hear, then we, verse, I'm sorry, verse 17, stage five, treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector, Jesus says. In other words, treat him like he or she is apparently behaving like an unbeliever. Treat them like what seems to now might be the case. A further step or stage in the process is always avoidable with repentance, right? That's one thing we can take away from looking at the whole of that section of Matthew 18. We can always stop moving ahead to the next step by just that person repenting. That's all it takes. And the issue is not the original sin, whatever it was. It's not really even the degree of that specific sin or the kind of that specific sin. The concern is for habitual sin, callousness to sin, and habitual unrepentance about that sin. This process, at least in our church, goes slowly. Those five stages that I described for you take months to go through. We're in no hurry. We're praying in each step that God would use these means and these meetings and these brothers and sisters in confrontation to to bring repentance. We exhaust each stage, we say, before we ever move on to the next one. Nevertheless, at some point, you realize that you're 
starting to not obey Jesus if you don't move on. It's done in love. It's done in care. It's never done in retribution. It's never for the purpose of punishment. It's never for the purpose merely of embarrassment. This is in hopes of repentance and redemption. It's restoration. It's not punitive. And even if there is no repentance and restoration through any of these steps, and we regrettably have to go to that last stage, then there is something still that's loving and hopefully redemptive about it. Really, two things are hopefully redemptive and loving about it. Number one is even still they could repent and prove that they were truly of Christ. They truly had faith. They, they were believing their sin was prolonged and their hard-heartedness was significant, but eventually time and the Holy Spirit worked in such a way that they came to repent. But even if they, let's dare say they never do, that last step of church discipline to treat them as an unbeliever is a way to help a waywardly professing Christian to see that they may not, in fact, be converted. We're to treat them as we would treat any unbeliever. They've now gone full circle. We're to treat them now as a candidate for witnessing. To not do so is unloving. Where it's the case, where it's inevitably the case, that hard-heartedness, unrepentance has gone on for some time, many months, and the pleas have gone unheard. They may be acting like an unbeliever because they're an unbeliever and it's no love to cry peace, peace when there is no peace. They need to know that we think they need the gospel. 1 John 2.19 is so important when we talk about this topic. Let me quote it for you. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. So some are with us and, and of us. Those who are of us will stay with us. Not perfectly so, but generally so. But there are some who are with us who won't always be with us because, according to 1 John two nineteen, they were not ultimately, originally, ever with us or of us. It's not that true Christians can fall away. We talked about that on Sunday, right? If God gives the Holy Spirit as a down payment for our inheritance to come, then you can't lose that. You can't mess that up. But what 1 John 2.19 does tell us is that some professed Christians proved that their profession was ultimately an empty one, that it wasn't real. Judas would fall under this category in Scripture. But Peter, despite his triple denial, would not. Matthew 7 talks about the Judas-like category. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom. Lord, didn't we do all these great things in your name? Yes, I never knew you. Depart from me. You see in Matthew 13, the parable of the four soils. There are four soils describing or picturing different ways in which the gospel is received or rejected. The first soil rejects the gospel. The two middle ones receive the gospel at first, or so it seems, but it's not lasting, it's not real. 
It's only that last soil that bears fruit, and that fruit is lasting, that is of the real kind. We call this kind of thing, those two middle soils, they seem to receive it. They, they followed in Judas's footsteps, among others. We call that kind of thing in Scripture apostasy. It's a word which means to fall away. Not that they truly did fall away, but it appears they have fallen away from their profession. And there are two kinds of apostasy. There is moral apostasy, which is probably the most common. And Matthew 18 is talking about that kind, where sin and a lack of repentance might eventually start to indicate lostness. But there is also gospel apostasy, where there might be not any new, ongoing, blatant sin or a new level of unrepentance, but they have now denied the biblical gospel and have now turned to another gospel. That needs to be treated in just the same way, the same kind of thing is happening. But eventually, eventually, just to back up and give a summary of Matthew 18, eventually according to Jesus, some things on a sin and unrepentance level need to be addressed churchwide. And eventually, it may even be the most loving thing to recognize that we believe they went out from us. Thankfully, we're not at that last stage yet. We're at stage four where we tell it to the church. But this is a small piece of judgment, you could say, now that points to and warns of the possibility of a judgment to come that is far greater and far longer. The question is, are we willing to obey Jesus? Are we really willing to believe that Matthew 18 is in our Bibles, or do we whistle as we walk past it? Do we really believe that God can bless even when it seems counterintuitive? Sometimes it may not look like the loving thing, but then again it may be that we have the culture, the world's concept of what is loving that we're reading back into God's word. You see, this, this means that there's some sort of overt covenanting together, some sort of membership where we say, we're in this, we're going to do this, we're going to treat these passages truly and really and sometimes heavily. Let me remind you of our covenant of fellowship that many of you have signed. I won't read the whole thing. There are three paragraphs before. The first half gives us uh, really, a, a thorough list of the specifics of what the Bible calls Christians to be and to do. And you can put a Bible verse next to every phrase in there. It's, it's all right in the Bible. A covenant of fellowship says, here's what we're going to do together. And we need that, especially in a church our size, and especially in 21st century America that's rather consumeristic and hops churches pretty frequently. We, we need each other to say, I'm in it, and I'm going to do what the Bible says. Are you in it with me? All right, let's shake hands. Well, we have kind of a shaking hands document. And again, some of these things are written out for us. I won't read all of it, but the second half of it I will read. It says we commit to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to aid one another in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for, us, for reconciliation, mindful of the teaching of our Savior, to seek it without delay. We've covenanted to do that. 
Moreover, we resolve that when we remove from this church to do so in a manner that's consistent with biblical love, communication, truth, and the good of Christ's body, and further, to unite with a church where we can carry out the principles and spirit of this covenant. And then there's a closing paragraph which we added in 2006. This is basically an old covenant of fellowship, been around for hundreds of years, and we added to that this explicit statement. I expect and trust that as I lax in my commitment to these principles, this body at Desert Springs Church will hold me accountable with reproof, rebuke, and exhortation to keep me faithful to the commitment that I'm making. And furthermore, as I commit myself to this fellowship, I realize that I'm entrusted with the same obligation of mutual exhortation and encouragement. If I ever continue in my sin without true repentance and do not hear the pleas and rebukes of my brothers and sisters in Christ, I implore this body to seek my spiritual restoration in proceeding in the steps of restoration and purity given by Jesus in Matthew 18. That's what we're talking about tonight. Something that many of us in this room have signed. Here's some lessons for us at a time like this. Thank God for his church. We're not in it alone and we don't have to make it on our own. I don't feel strong enough to make it on my own. I need brothers and sisters to nudge me here and nudge me there and say, what was that there? I need that. I have that here. I pray that you have that here as well. Thank God for his church. Secondly, God is in this. He's not only in this, he's with us in what we're doing right now. In Matthew 18, right after, we stopped at verse 18, I believe. In verse 20, you, you probably know this verse. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Which sounds like such a happy, lovely, innocent verse. Except that it's right in the middle of a church discipline passage. Jesus is with us when two or three are gathered together. Oh, wait, didn't we read two or three earlier tonight? Where's the closest two or three in the Bible? If we're looking at Matthew 18, verse 20, two or three gathered together, there I am in the midst. What's the closest two or three? The two or three witnesses who were involved in confronting a brother's sin. He's in the midst of it. He's with us. Another lesson is that we keep trusting what God gives us in his word. Keep trusting it. Of course, it reminds us that we all the more must repent and believe that tonight we fight to repent. Tonight we fight to believe for our soul's sake, for our church's sake, for our kids' sake. Let us all the more walk in holiness when when the topic on the table is public confrontation. And let's cling all the more tightly to the cross. That's our only hope. That's anyone's only hope. That God is a merciful God. That there is mercy in Jesus Christ. That his work is finished. The dangerous thing about the progression of Matthew 18 is 
the problem of unrepentant sin and what that means about whether we first possibly embrace the gospel or not. We need to cling tightly to the cross as our only hope. So in a minute, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, and then we'll sing again, and then we'll end with some specifics, some, some names. Right now, let's take some time for quiet prayer. Bow with me, if you would, and let's obey 1 Corinthians 11 to examine ourselves. Let's remember that tonight's message doesn't change what we always say about examination in 1 Corinthians 11, that none of us examine ourselves in order to pass the test. None of us have been good enough. None of us have been faithful enough. None of us have repented enough. Only Jesus is our righteousness. So again, we look inward. I know we've been possibly thinking about others for a little bit. But now the attention turns inward. And we think about seasons of rebellion in recent days. Times of grumbling. Days of prayerlessness. Lack of hunger for God's word. Quickness to complain. Quickness to gossip. Hunger for possessions and things. Dissatisfaction with what the Lord has given us. These sins are grave. And it's good for us to walk ourselves through the ugliness of our sin the seriousness of God's judgment and for us to come out the other side seeing a victorious Savior who died completely and fully in our place. Take a minute for quiet examination, contemplation and prayer of these things.